Welcome to another episode of What the Plus F, where we break down the complexity of ESG and meet those who have mastered how to use ESG to unlock value, what we call the Plus F of ESG. I'm your host, Oliver Barnes, and today on this episode, we'll jump into part two of our conversation with a leading ESG practitioner and a value member of the ESG Plus F advisory board, Joel Coward. If you missed part one of this discussion, I highly recommend that you jump back to episode two and catch part one. Listen to Joel talking about ESG as a business necessity, how it's found in so many elements of business today. On this episode today, as part two, Joel shares what he believes an ESG practitioner's job will look like in 2050, including an era of RSG, Restoration, Social and Governance, and how times of war, conflict and disaster accelerates collective action and what good data and a healthy dose of dyslexic thinking can do to solve many of the world's problems. So without further ado, let's dive back into our conversation with Joel Coward. Yeah, it's coming back to that risk and opportunity, but what you're looking at, and, and when they say double materiality, it's effectively two axes. So you're, you're taking yep. a simplified approach to say, first and foremost, what impact does this attribute topic or, or, or issue have on our business? as an assessment, mm -hmm. you then align it to one of those 26 categories, uh, 26 GICs in our view, because it, it, it captures it nicely from a data taxonomy and disclosure point of view. So it serves down the future. And then what you do is you run that exercise again, ideally in consultation with, but sometimes, you know, budget doesn't allow. So you're doing it on a desktop basis, but you're then saying my stakeholder groups and what's the impact that yeah. it has on them. And that gives you the two accesses. We take it one stage further where once you get that and you get, you know, high to low, ultimately you want your categories put into priority one, two, we call it significant and then watch list. And once you set that, your, your, your first question you're asking the board, the, if there's an ESG committee, the executive leadership team and, and, and all the other people involved, including stakeholders, do you feel this represents where we stand at the, on the business? If you can't land where everybody is on the same page in an agreement, you've already, um, I guess, um, fractured the room and alienated um, people you're going to need on the journey to that process. Once you have that, that's such a, a really sort of empowering, yeah. cleansing, simplification uh, of, of those processes. But it's also a snapshot in time. So that's what we were thinking then. Um, you know, I use Optus actually as an example when I talk about this, you know, they Data security is one of those um, GIC categories and one of those buckets. And that wasn't a material topic. And, you know, the breach happens. And surely now you go back to materiality assessment and go, well, it's moved from significant to priority one for us. And that is where we're going to spend our dollars because that has the biggest impact on us as, as an organization right yeah. now. So it's a really kind of um, insightful uh, point to, to look at. And then the second stage for that, that prioritization it, it helps it that prioritization taking that risk-based priorities that you say okay why do i need to you know let's say de decarbonization tends to come out as number one at the moment <clears throat> and you go you know great why do we we've done the assessment on it and we understand why we're doing this so we are resourcing mm -hmm. this this we're putting our capacity towards this because we see this is our risk or our top five risks or our immediate risks are these and 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 resolving those and that's it's a little bit more triage but that's what 
and the power of, and you're right, materiality assessments are so powerful, but they're often done so poorly because they'll take it internally and they'll say, we think that it should be this. And you go, no, no, that's just your opinion or your PR or that's, you know, Peter principle where it says it's limited by your, 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 um, your own inabilities. Whereas, you know, the approach that you folks are taking with it, especially with the double materiality approach and across the stakeholders, getting really quality data from those stakeholders really does make a huge difference. And, you know, say that having done, you know, double materiality assessment, you know, within recently with the last um, <clears throat> sustainability report that I wrote, which was well contributed to. Um, and it's what was really amazing on that was to see what had changed from this year to last year to the year before. And one of the big things that came in all of a sudden was things like human rights and modern slavery because they're new. And that's because when you're talking to different jurisdictions, if you keep it just within Australia, it can be a little narrow. If you're going multi-jurisdiction like you folks do, you're picking up the nuances of, you know, the Europeans will view this very seriously. Why? Because the Germans have just brought in, you know, mandatory human rights and environmental, you know, supply chain due diligence. That's important. Mm. Oh, okay, cool. You know, Uyghur labor is now a big driving part of, you know, you know, US law and, you know, anti-Uyghur labor, forced labor acts, you know, which is those sort of things are driving that. So what wasn't apparent a year or two years or three years ago is now apparent. The only challenge with that is, is making sure that a company doesn't try and change directions too much as if and where that changes, right? So, or, or adapts again, keeping, because themes like decarbonization are going to be a constant. So again, keeping that objective towards that focus, but the materiality assessment really does and double materiality, your impact on the environment is really important. And that I think that's going to help drive, again, impact and effectiveness of your programs based on quality data. It's a, it's, <coughs> it serves a lot of purposes as well. It takes the bias out of the room. Because, um, mm. you know, if you are sitting with a room of, of parties that want to go on the ESG journey, but haven't necessarily got the experience and one person has more experience, they're going to naturally bring what they've learned. And that's, that yeah. brings a screw to, to the process rather than what is most impactful for the business. Um, the second part uh, and where it serves is to really justify how many dollars, I mean, what should be the dollar spent from here? So if you end up with, you know, you know, four or five material topics in your priority one, it gets a lot easier to sort of start to set budget and work programs around that. If you suddenly end up with, you know, half the 26 in there, you go, we've got a really yeah. big problem or we're either going to need more budget or we're going to have to be more ruthless about what we cut back on in terms yeah. of, or, or, or what risk we then absorb back as a business um, and are comfortable with it that. It stops you boiling the ocean as well. Mm. So then the, and the it, next it, stage it, beyond that um, with the 26 GICs, and this comes back to who do we get into the room, but there's a real opportunity here to just run a basic, you know, racy, you know, responsible, accountable, mm. consult, inform, matrix over the top of those 26 so often we now find that cfos really want to um, have oversight on climate because naturally it's becoming and from next year onwards mandatory climate disclosure in australia mm -hmm. it's really very much and, and a lot of those sort of accounting skill sets um, cpa type skill sets fall into carbon accounting um, you know your spend analysis forms are really the baseline data that you're going to use to start to evolve what your emissions mm. profile looks like 
So we, it, it's interesting you're starting to see that sort of, I guess, the portfolio of ESG um, get split out. I think and, and the, way, the way we would recommend I think it really, doing that uh, is, yeah. is to try to keep within that um, systematic structure because, again, serves all the purposes around data, information disclosure, target audiences. Well, having the right people in the room as well helps with that data acquisition too. Because mm. and, and that's why it's important to, you know, you know, realistically the best people to have in the room are your executives that cover each major area of the business, including operations, because and being able to say, We're gonna need this data, we're gonna need this information. You're you're part you know, as employees, you're also part of our stakeholder group, so we're gonna need your help for this too. And, and getting everybody not reading them the riot act, but saying we all need to be aligned on this. This is this is part of how we do business now. It's going to have to, and it's increasingly part of our business. Don't worry, change takes time, and evolution takes time. Keep calm and carry on. But we all need to be on 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 one page with it, um, because one of the core things is to remember it's not about us. It's not about the company. It's actually about the people we help. It's about other people actually, and the role of the company to help, you know, preserve the planet, preserve you know biodiversity, preserve you know human dignity, you know those sort of things, right? So it's 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 quite actually um, an exciting space to be. But you do need those core stakeholders in there, so everybody understands. But then also, at the same time, it's much more efficient that you can lift the capability up at the same time, but also get everybody in line with the fact that you say. Who doesn't understand this? I don't, I don't, I don't. I'm not quite sure. Great. Okay, we'll do it together. One team, yeah. one executive team, one board. We're going to do this together. We're all going to learn. Because again, for concepts like this, this is, you know, you also got a generational gap in that knowledge. You know, you, you'll have, you know, people who are, you know, the sort of the, you know, with age and with, you know, inexperience you know, are, are up the chain right now or in boards. And this is, this is a new concept to them. You know, I had a conversation with a board member recently and, and that, that was, they said, we really didn't pay much attention to ESG until, you know, their granddaughter turned up and said, you know, grandpa, you, you work in mining, mining's bad. It's, it's, mm. it's going to hurt the planet. And he was like, like really grieved by that because he was like, actually, we're producing, you know, copper or nickel or, you know, critical minerals that we're going to need to decarbonize. You know, that, that's, no, that's not the case. And that, totally changed his perspective on ESG and then he actually came out and got and said we've got to lift this for the whole board how do we do this as one um, yeah so it's not done in isolation no. you, you touched on something really interesting there which is also disclosure so that's an output so we, we talked a lot about the internal um, components to ESG you know finding gaps the, really the, the business process improvement opportunities that come from that then getting value recognition or, or what you need to do you, you get to a point where certain information fulfills disclosure and esg does pull companies to some extent into the world of forward-looking statements which comes mm -hmm. back to data and being able to substantiate mm -hmm. that and not have asic and asx bouncing all over you and um you know saying please explain and let's start the process yeah. from scratch um with with linking to reputational risk but a lot of organizations you know have just then lent on a an annual rather than a continuous disclosure mm. instrument which has been the sustainability report um 
you know, we're seeing, and particularly with our clients, obviously climate becoming mandatory disclosure starts to move into your annual report. So some mm -hmm. of those ESG um, uh, material risks, because it's material risks and the way the regulators are managing this through the Courts Act, it becomes a, an annual report function. Mm. Whereas in the past, maybe a sustainability report had served that. But we, we're certainly seeing now probably the third evolution of ESG, particularly as now it's a quantifiable science rather than a sort of principle-based touch and fill. But we're certainly seeing um, organizations saying, look, the, this sustainability report, it's been the same year on year and it doesn't actually serve any purpose. Yeah, the template. Yeah, I love that. You can flip again. Um, or, or the other comment, which is, just, do people not That's read reports anymore? Right? And they get really angry about it because it, it is quite a stressful 11th hour type exercise on the back oh, it's of terrible. before yeah. or after it's an experience. annual report. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a lot more effective ways to go about disclosure. What, what's yeah. your um, position on, on sustainability reports or, and particularly annual, annual sustainability reports? Oh, look, it's a once a year exercise, you know, which is sort of similar to, you know, if I got on a plane and the pilot checked the altimeter once in the flight, um, geez, you'd really hope you're at 30,000 feet. Um, and the challenge with that is, is, is that it's, it's a good start and that's okay. It's a good foundation. Everybody started, has got to start somewhere. The challenge with it is though, is, is that it, it, it's, it's inaccurate because it's out of date by the time it's even been published. It's constantly looking back versus in real time. And one of the real challenges, and I'll give you a good example, is if you're doing like an ASX release or a market release, for example, or a quarterly report, and you're looking at, you know, doesn't matter what it is, you know, guidance measures or whatever. One of the things that you, would be fantastic to be able to do, and one of the great challenges has been to say, well, you know, we, as a company, we've made commitments to be you know, carbon neutral by time X. This was our carbon profile or our water profile or at least core indices that speak to that materiality. This, this is how much we did or how much we used it, it went up or it went down and start disclosing that to the market because that would help. Imagine that if you, you're looking at it from an investment point of view that you can factor that into you, how you be able, you're able to grade companies and you know to say, well, look at their emissions, you know, what's it doing over time on a real time basis or relatively real-time basis versus once a year a document comes out that's had assurance and when I say assurance it's very limited assurance it's not not as in-depth as financial assurance yet it's, we know um, what the assurance market from an accounting point of view is looking like at the moment so yeah it's tend yeah. to so follow that same format um, yeah whereas you could say if you can provide in a perfect world I would love to be able to say, where are we today? Chairperson comes down or CEO comes down or major investor comes down and I can say, today we are here on the map. I can show you on the map where we are on our journey today and all the data you want versus an annual PR exercise. It's getting better, but the quality of the, the, quality of the sustainability reports is really down to the individuals driving that quality. I mean, um, 
because you can see that, and you know, we're coming up to investors, you know, investor roadshow season right now, as all the you know annual reports are coming out now. Whether that be you know financial, which is different beast, sustainability and modern slavery statements, and their vague generalities, bland generalities that are still talking about oh we may, we shall, or we want to, we want to come to, and we're you know. But there's nothing quantifiable realistically in there. I mean, other than the things you can quantify, you know. But they've taken a long time to get there. So real time, again, I'd like my pilot and my plane to have real-time altimeters. That would be really good so I know where I am. <laughs> I'm not going to crash, right? So That's one of the like areas flying. that we've been uh, investing heavily in, job because we, we yeah. recognize that. You have to have a need, but... Your data has to do two things. It has to, you know, you sit on a lot of internal data that may not be ready for disclosure, but you want to know where you stand. What are our gaps? How have we progressed? So when, when your, you know, MD or someone in the executive team says where we at today, you can immediately respond yeah. to that. Not, uh, um, I'm sorry, but you know, and, and the because second that is thing. then, yeah, the second is then the person that has under that racy, but effectively the delegated control can decide strategically and, and particularly working with the, the investor relations team, what to move across the line for disclosure. Um, mm. when you've got to obviously allow continuous disclosure. So you can't go giving that information out unless you've had an opportunity for everybody to see it at the same time. Um, yeah. and, you know, our conclusion there has been performance data centers. So effectively these are well-structured CSV files. Um, that break the data disclosures, the reporting indexes down using that taxonomy should always be readily available and can be um, mm. updated at any time through a website and through portals for for um, for for our clients. And that's that's a big area. We we think there's a lot more value in performance data than sustainability reports. Now, sustainability are obviously yeah, completely so marketing, and they're great from a case study. Um, and, and I guess color, putting color behind the data, but all the investors, the banks, the insurance companies are asking for particular data that their own um, uh, instruments, ratings tools, risk ratings tools are trying to absorb um, to make a judgment, to, to understand whether they want to do business with the company and really effectively what would be a risk premium or, or weighting that yep. they're, they're trying to assign. So imagine if you took that narrative away from an annual sustainability report, right? Yeah, all of a sudden, and it was just the the data, the numbers, right? That were, you know, relatively immutable and well-ledged in a central space. That, And you took the narrative away. All of a sudden, that drives a different sort of outcome or view on things. It takes the PR away and the fluff and actually gets down to the core of either you're good, you're not good, or you're improving or, you're, you know, you know, whatever that might be what and i think that's an important thing because it's if I, if i said if you were if you were again mining company if you said how much how many tons have we produced today you would have that information like that right it would be you'd have, have a real-time tracker on it right um or you know how much has gone through the mill or how much has gone through the refinery today or whatever you have that data because that's business critical but so's this so's esg how much has gone out the stack today um you know you then have to go and recalculate that. The other thing is as well, when you do have that limited, if you've got <laughs> limited teams, 
in limited people digitize technology right mm. it's it's it means it's it means that then you take the stress out of their lives because you then sustainability people if they've got that core ability to draw that data you've got it there that performance data it means that they can focus on then what's important not just yeah. having to then stress out everybody and then have to go to you know head of procurement or some person on a random you know work site somewhere and be able to get that data and then oh they're on leave at the moment or oh, they'll be back they're on off, off off roster at the moment oh they'll be back then or, oh, i don't know where this is or oh, i'm not quite sure but and if you do get it it's in 17 different formats and you go, oh, good grief. Then you have to compile it and consolidate it. It's, um, it's really stressful and yeah. which is okay if you can manage that stress, but it's very taxing after a while. So it's that ability of digitization of data is a great enabler for attracting and retaining people, making their workplace a happier, more productive and meaningful place which might not sound very exciting to people, but when you have to do it all the time, it's, 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 it's draining. And you suddenly go, why am I doing this as a sustainability professional? I'm not, not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not there to help. I'm not, not, I don't feel like I'm having an impact. So take the drudgery out, digitize it, centralize it, get it that way. It's amazing. It'll make such a difference. As yeah, a we often real... talk, yeah, we often talk about, you know, once you've done all that work, um, you know, the, the, the other thing about sustainability reports, or if you're looking at rating agencies or data exchanges, yeah. they have to go and run yeah. a bot. They, they, so they typically run a bot over the top of a report to scrape information. And then depending on how large or valuable that data is, is the investment time of an analyst to be able to do that work, interpret it, and turn it yep. into something that a data exchange like the Bloomberg, Bloomberg, S&P, um, all the way through to, you know, ESG book, um, MSCI, you know, all of these instruments, sustainalytics that are powering, um, I guess, ratings, that's traditionally how it's been done. And it's such an inefficient way to get your information into oh, completely. that global network. Um, so you've got to be able to prepare to take, once you've disclosed data, it's, it just makes total sense. You've made an, all that investment, take it the last mile. So you can reprocess that data in the format that um, a rating agency will want to receive it and directly feed it to them. And the amount of times we've looked at people complaining about their ratings and then we've gone through, we've spoken to the company or they've publicized when the analyst did the work. And it's like they, they, they did the work. It was an 18 month window. You got slotted into that slot yet mm. you did your and your sustainability report arrived 60 days after that work was done now you've got 18 months before you're going to get updated again yeah because they're not going to reinvest in that process and so people get really frustrated with rating agencies but actually the the bottleneck or the floor is um uh, in the process that the company's going about actually getting the information they decided to disclose out there and oh, distributing completely and that's right. still a very manual process too. Even just putting that into, you know, you know, you pick your rating agency of choice, whether it be DJSO, MSCI. It's still a very manual process that takes to be able to go and get that, collect that, and collaborate it, and, and put it together. And it's just, it's just a terrible process. Whereas, yeah. if you can digitize that and then draw that all in, like you, you good folks are doing, it makes life a lot easier and um and and more accurate and in more real time. So you can actually make appropriate decisions but mm. also at the same time 
Again, ESG, I mean, the challenge with a lot of the rating agencies right now is, is that, again, they're very focused on the E side, the quant side, which is very, very, because that's their realm. They're really good at that. They're really, so again, how do you move that quant into the unquantified or the quality, qualitative, you know, to start building that out? And because um, there can be an over-dependence in some regards of someone saying, oh, we, we got a great score on, you know, DJSI or MSCI or Sustainalytics or whatever, or we got an EcoVadis gold standard or something like that. Yeah. Which looks great and is instantly that sugar hit that, you know, every company wants to get, you know. But at the same time, when you start to peel it away, you go, yeah, what's this really saying? Well, is this really actually measuring impact and effectiveness or is this just peer-to-peer comparison? Is this saying, actually, everybody's an inch off the bottom right now and this person's just a little <laughs> bit higher above <laughs> everybody else? Which means that you go, it's sort of like, then it's almost like a race to the bottom that you go um, <clears throat> yeah. versus that ability to say, look, all of those metrics and matrix and standards are really important. Don't rely on one, you know, bring them all in, pull them together to be able to get a real tangible view, you know, really triangulate what you're looking for, you know, and, and the dyslexic in me loves that because dyslexic will always... Um, we think in pictures, we think spatially, we think in 3D in many cases. So what we want is we don't just want one linear data source. What we want is we want, a, we want multiple data sources coming from multiple directions and we want a tactile experience and we want pictures and shapes and colors and movements and different views to really form that picture of what does the current state look like right now. That's very easy to say and it's very difficult to do. And that's a yeah. Know. But by, by by getting a data center, there's all of those opportunities. Mm -hmm. So you, you typically, you know, we say this a lot um, with the with the parties that we work with. Um, the person that's responsible inside the organization that we're championing, supporting, they're delegating to us to do a lot of the mundane pieces yep. here to, to to get them through to that point. But what you're doing is you're getting them ready for. They've got to have three levels of conversations. They've got to be able to have a three minute discussion. Maybe at a board level, cut straight to the chase. What do they need to know? Is it a yep. is it a discussion or is it a decision that you're asking for? Then you've got to be able to have the half an hour discussion, which probably executive leadership teams are interested mm -hmm. in that this has happened. We saw this with this. This happened in this region. What does it mean where we're at? Um, what do we look like versus uh, the rest of the market? And then obviously within the reporting units, the business units themselves, you know, someone's going to want to go deep. They're going to want to have the three-hour discussion and break it apart mm. and bring it back together. Um, but data pulled together, again, with taxonomy in a systemized approach can service all of those functions. So, you know, uh, one of the things we see now, particularly with, with mandatory climate disclosure, one of the things is board oversight. So, you know, that's a really interesting concept and an and area, but board can no longer pretend that they don't know about this. It's just... You've got to be able to do it succinctly in a harmonized way that they can interpret it and, and effectively, you know, drive what they need to do from a decision-making process. And I, that's a good point is, is that, you know, it's no longer in the ESG world credible to go, we didn't know. I mean, you've got issues of strict liability and, you know, boards and execs and, and now in down to individual managers are going to be really exposed to civil criminal tort actions 
<clears throat> for their decisions and sitting there saying, I did not know, I did not know. Well, when you're on half a million dollars and you're a vice president of a you know major mining company, for example, it's expected, you know, and you should know. So, you know, the good old days of, you know, deniable, you know, of, you know, of deniability or, you know, some sort of tangible culpability. They go, oh, I didn't know. You do know. You do know now. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's that case of saying, that. again, that's part of... That's, that's a massive leap that we've seen in the last 18 months. Not only yeah. um, is it measurable and quantifiable now, ESG, but the regulators have really understood the science. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the universe yeah. does not need any more discovery. Yes, it's going to naturally continue to evolve, um, mm. but the regulators are getting really good at this um, and they yeah. can tell a lot. They're, and they're moving now. fast too. That, and yeah, moving and very quickly on this. Not side. only are they smart, what is smart is your litigants, your lit sorry, your litigators. They're getting really savvy, really smart because when you've got people who volunteer their time and their skill set to be able to help social and environmental causes, for example, they will put their time towards, you know, you know, to help support a claim against a company uh, for ESG breach or, you know, greenwashing or, you know, forced labor or something like that um it's no you know we used to you know rely on investigative journalists to be one or two people doing it now it's not it's this army of very tech savvy people who can draw data from all sorts of places and challenge what you're saying almost immediately to then build that claim and then you get you know people like client earth or liberty shared out of the you know out of hong kong who will then take that and utilize that as part of their claim and that claim is i mean any legal claim against you is going to be time consuming, expensive. It does impact on your share, you know, whether people invest or divest, um, you know, that's, that's a great risk. So again, you know, having that good ESG data at, at an available point where you can also then use that as part of your shield, you know, and a shield is not just an defensive weapon to defend yourself from it's also an offensive weapon you can you, you can move forward you can be proactive with it um so you don't have to sit down there and carry on a corner you can actually say well let's use this data to not only defend ourselves and if someone makes a claim we can say well look here it is we, we disagree and we can we can we can we can kill this at discovery but also at the same time you've got that ability to be able to say actually we're going to use this data because we have identified that risk let's 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 knock it out before anything happens let's solve it before it happens or prioritize mm -hmm. it or at least recognize it and part of that disclosure is that ability to say we've found an issue have we solved it yet no but this is what we're going to do about it to do it and we're going to measure it and we're going to tell you about it as we go that rectification that rehabilitation to some degree or that resolution when you find an issue having good data to be able to help drive that performance and impact to, to close that out and resolve that is also the next phase of that that's really important and you know to help to help companies and but also again help people help the planet and this is one of the major things that we've seen is is that in a traditional corporate sense, if like anti-corruption, if there was an anti-corruption event, you know, there was bribery or sanctions or something like that. Traditionally, cut and run. So run out of the burning building as fast as you possibly can and distance yourself from them. The challenge is when you look at an ESG issue, it's no longer now of saying, oh, look, we're just going to mitigate it and by cutting, cutting the relationship. You can't. You're going to have to resolve it. You're 
part of the resolution process. Um, and whether you're good at that or successful at that is also going to be you know, a, a real uh, liability. And we're seeing this more and more and more and more, you know, where, um, you know, environmental uh, sustainability standards uh, are removed publicly because the data is now telling and the, the data and the performance when overlapped is now saying you're not doing as well you know fsc so forest stewardship, forestry stewardship council did that recently mm. um with uh, an operator palm oil operator um in in indonesia where that they publicly came out and said we've been working with them for 18 months the data and you know all the data we've collected has shown no progress we've worked with them consistently this is what we've done about it because there was human rights and environmental issues and we're, we're, we're revoking their sustainability standard and we are now we've done everything we that's reasonable to do we've and that's that's a step change and a shift in how we do business and it's also a shift in how we look at our duties of care and our fiduciary duties as companies you know to companies internally to shareholders to stakeholders to regulators so the the, the power of the that data to help track progress you know and tr and track you know performance and impact is going to be really critical too and, and especially when you've breached those standards those you know frameworks where you've gone whoops actually we have breached that that's going to be important to, to get you back on track you know it's um it's an incredible um generational opportunity particularly for companies like mm. uh, you know based here in australia because we, we 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 live in a reasonably regulated environment so you know we, we're dealing with international um clients and um, complex supply chains particularly in the mining industry but always we've just had we've got a high cost environment typically you know it's not cheap here and we i couldn't believe it when i arrived in australia in 2014 that people actually fly to the mine site do some work there, then fly back. But you know, we, we that this wouldn't happen in other jurisdictions in the world. But the, my point being there is having a conversation just on price um, is something that hasn't served necessarily Australian companies particularly well. You become pretty, you know, utility rate of return. You chip something, you lose that value of that, and your connectivity with it. What a complete shift this is now happening and turning around where as actually Australia, particularly as a critical minerals jurisdiction, Western Australia can benefit from this. Got a real role to play to participate, you know, open up trade internationally. And See, I have an unhealthy bias towards South Australia, right? mate. So. <laughs> <laughs> and South Australia. But you, you, you get my point. So, you know, you would have been walking into those rooms. I think there's companies that are really sort of, um, you know, particularly those that have been in the mineral sand sector, you know, have really mm. started to, to unlock that. Um, find out what markets do we want to participate in? Let, let's not try and supply everybody. Let's, let's pick the markets that are going to yeah. recognize yeah. the value for these attributes that we're able to bring um, to this commodity um, and get and some share of that, that value creation piece that happens typically more downstream than, than upstream. So. And, and the key word there is value. It's moving it, and I know that you can hear the economists shake in their boots as they go, no, Keynes and Fisher and, you know, Friedman, no, 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 no. It's moving the concept of price and cost to value because 
value has along your stakeholders, your six major stakeholder groups, is has is different to each one. Price and cost is very easy to quantify. Again, that's easy, you know, like but value is a little bit harder. Um and the real thing there is is and you've touched on a very good point. Um, and it was a great discussion I had recently with some groups in Southeast Asia and, and again here in Australia where they said, yeah, but our regulations say X or our environment is saying, let's, let's, um, let's stay, you know, this is what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. The challenge with it is, to your point, is in your right. Who do you want to sell to and set that standard if you can? So if you want to sell nickel or copper or, you know, vanadium or whatever to... Um, to Europe, you're going to have to hit that European standard. And that European standard is going to be way higher than Australia's is right now because of the push in there. So so it's not just being good enough to say, oh, yeah, in Australia, we're good. You're going to have to be European good or whatever that higher standard is and hit that. And that's um, and proving that is really, really tough because, you know, when you look at it from an OEM or, you know, perspective back down that value chain when you're um, or back up that value chain, I should say, um, to, to miners, they don't understand mining, for example, and miners don't understand manufacturers, which is really, really funny. Um, they just don't understand each other. Um, so it's helping them align that together. Um, because again, that, that case of, you know, my, you know, and then that completes the circularity space as well. So it's, it's whatever that higher standard is hit it and don't just be caught up by saying, oh, well, Australia only says we have to get, do it this far off the ground. Well, actually, Europeans now want this. Well, that's what you want. That's what you go for. And not every jurisdiction is going to want that. And that's that's a real key driver. If you watch those wanting to sell into Europe right now or into the United States and increasingly Japan, because Japan is following the EU and the Germans very, very closely, and they always have because since the major year on industrial development and law, they're the ones lifting the ESG standard because the market is demanding it. So I said it earlier, you know, how you buy, operate and disclose will define how you sell and who invests. But I'll also say that then the mirror to that is how you wish to sell is going to define how you have to operate, disclose, and buy, right? So absolutely, yeah. Look, that, that's you know that's going back to that boardroom discussion where I got shot yeah. off at the knees um, about the ESG donating to the WWF. My experience, and that's why you know that's why I went on this journey with this with launching yeah. ESG Plus F. But that's the Plus F. You know, I can give examples unrelated to myself, but a great example was a aim listed company before ESG was, a, you know, was, was widely used, but they um, knew Britain palm oil. You can look up and follow their story, but they um, ended up in the palm oil industry, which is full of controversies. Um, they were in Papua New Guinea. Um, so not the primo jurisdiction in terms of yield or economics um, uh, from palm oil supply, but they could produce a more, I guess, um, environmentally friendly uh, and bring out attributes in their palm oil. And they didn't want to go compete with price with the Indonesians and the Malaysians. So they went and created their own market and they started off, you know, they started off actually as managers of small estates and then they ended up acquiring those estates. And 
they got so good at this through creating an ecosystem that allowed others to participate in it that so long as they could mm. reach their what we'd say values and alignment of values but they created the um, sustainable roundtable for palm oil and that mm -hmm. gradually cleaned up the supply chain to a point that that then represented 20 percent they, they could not get enough um yeah. uh, uh certified palm oil and they were selling this at a 20% premium above a very commoditized palm oil. It just, you know, it's traded on spot market um, to the point that it forced the largest palm oil company in the world to go and spend 1.7 billion US dollars just buying this business. Um, and it was, a, it was a really interesting journey that went on for 10 years. And they created literally from a small palm oil management business, a 1.7 billion US dollar um, a listed market uh, company. Um, yeah. and, and I think you're right. I mean, we're seeing this now a little bit more in, in, in critical minerals, for example, because what you're buying is now you're moving from Australia loves a commodity. We like doing one thing and selling to one group and, you know, doing, we can only do one thing at a time, right? Um, possibly two. But what's happening is you're moving from a bulk commodity space, iron ore, coal, that sort of stuff, or maybe even bauxite, where you're sitting there going, actually, now we're selling critical minerals. And especially if those critical minerals, are, you know, and if, you know, copper, for example, is coming out in cathode form, you, what you've got is moving from a primary manufacturing, or sorry, primary industry to a secondary manufacturing phase, right? So you're value adding, value creating to have a secondary manufacturing. So a mine with a factory on top, basically. And what we're finding in that is, is, is that if done right with ESG, you can get that market accessibility and that set that new standard because you're creating a product a desirable product, not a commodity. You know, you 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 are, you know, you're, you're producing kettle chips, not just mashed potato, right? Like it's, you know, mm -hmm. you you're actually, and so as such, you you are in that position where you can influence that better, more fast because you're producing a more premium, bespoke, I suppose, product. Which again, the economists will go, no, 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 this is not possible. It is possible. It has been done. And they'll say, no, economies of scale. And you go, yeah, no, it's just about efficiencies at scale is really what you can be looking at. And changing this concept around to pooling resources, right, is a different thing, you know, where you can actually, you know, the French do it, you know, con you know Appalachian Control E, for example, or, you know, regionalized specialized foods, for example. You know, I'll challenge out there. And um, this was actually came out of um, a very good person, Lockie Hayes, who's with, uh, PwC. Uh, at a session he did on critical minerals the other day where he said it was a great point where he raised he goes you know we need to start thinking about provinces better provinces and better regions on on, on this to start pulling those resources and those you know that, that capital and those you know everything where you actually do set that standard with common-minded like-minded people to create a better mm -hmm. product that you can say wow this comes out of you know the the basin of um you know the you know south australian you know the gaula basin or whatever like that and you know isn't this great? Um, but it is possible and it's, and it can be done. And I think you will be seeing that more and more and more, but the difference with it will be, and this is what we found when we were doing blockchain traceability is, is, is that what I'll always love about good data fed into blockchain is, is that what you're doing is you're moving it from proof to profit. You're proving, and I can prove this. I know where it is. I know where it came from. I know what's in it. I can do this. And as such, you can demand that that better premium. 
and and if not, you can then you know there'll be a time potentially where you'll say, well, we're going to sell you know steel or copper or iron ore or whatever that might be at a discount because of its impurities, and those impurities may include carbon, for example. You know, um, where you say, well, so, actually, you're, you're carbon intensive, so we're going to sell it at a discount, <coughs> or there'll be a penalty on it. If you allow me to go somewhere completely, um, uh, I, I guess something that I've often felt for a while. I, obviously, uh, my background's land, water, agriculture, investment. We've mm. always had long-term, long-dated type mindsets, and then you get mm. to a mining industry, particularly here. You know, Western Australia, West Perth's famous for it. Did we get five million dollars? Did we drill some holes? Did we find something? It's immediacy, right? It's it's casino mm. type immediacy. And that behavior sort of sits in a number of businesses, particularly on the ASX. It's quite hard to, 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 to regulate that, but we see it in small businesses. We see it in big businesses. I mean, I don't know if this is controversial or not, but um, I, I would argue some of the issues that Qantas are now facing is because they shifted into an immediacy and, and maybe that's because of COVID, but they went into to, to a survival component. The, the fascinating thing from a board point of view is how do you balance? Cause obviously you want performance and your shareholders are there. And you got immediacy. Does your immediacy um, is it detrimental to your long term growth? Because ultimately, if you look at real wealth and how real wealth, which is an ultimate driver for investors, is created, mm. it's through this thing yeah. called compounding. Um, Warren yep. Buffett, the greatest master of it. Um, it's about consistency, long term, on you know reoccurring, 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 rather than sort of massive hits and massive failures and massive hits. And, you know, we all have to remind ourselves all the time because we love, you know, anyone loves to flutter on the casino or a bit of immediacy, but it's not necessarily a healthy thing. And the challenge with boards when they set, particularly around REM, is a lot of REM and the drivers sit around that. They sit around uh, things that you can measure, which is, you know, market cap, share price, performance. And, you know, particularly you can, I've seen companies invent counting standards that can completely transform some of those um, mm. uh, attributes. But then how do you balance that out with some, um, you know, with, with, I guess, consistent, reoccurring, sustainable, I'm not talking about sustainability, just sustainable growth, that compounding effect. And, you know, ESG arguably is one of those instruments that can be brought into mm. the boardroom that, that just is, it brings, it brings a counter and it brings a nice balance to those two two forces that are playing on in the, in those organizations. Oh, yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think it's, that's why it's interesting to see the increase in <clears throat> executive and board and remunerations. Now m the role of ESG coming in as not an, you know, 20 to 30% of that, of a long-term incentive scheme over three years versus, you know, short-term incentives. I, I've never been a great fan of because I feel that it drives that immediacy that you said. It's it's a short-term thinking based on what do we need to do right now so I can get my bonus versus when you're actually <clears throat> Im embedding that into a long-term structure, three years, for example, which is a good good period of time, it, sh it, it stops the immediacy and starts to say, how do we have that consistency and that persistency around what we're doing to start creating that change. It also then upskills and produces a culture within that executive team or that company to get across ESG, why it's important, why it's important to us, because it does impact us. We're going to get the benefits of it if we do the right thing and we can really measure that. But it also, again, it helps drive that culture change because, again, we're looking at a new 
a newer way or a new way of evolving business and anything new requires culture change because culture creates performance and that always starts at the top i don't care who knows it you know who says it um so if you've got that execs and those boards in that space where they're saying yeah this is going to be long term because <clears throat> and that's one of the great challenges we see in esg right now everybody wants that dopamine pr you know internal political you know status hit that they can put it on LinkedIn and say, oh, look what we did today and, you know, leak out a tear and I'm doing it for the children and all that, which is, you know, which is good intentions, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Versus actually saying, we're going to take a long-term view on this and we're going to be consistent in it. And in that consistency, that's the first step of, again, going back to what I was talking about, ESG fitness, start with what you got, work with what you got, start where you are, every little step counts you know every calorie every time you go to the gym it's it's about consistency of performance and persistency of performance over the longer term and you very rapidly will start seeing results you'll get plateaus and then you readjust your you know your training program or your ESG program a little bit to then get that better growth so again if you if we if we turned it into a fitness app or we turned it into something like that it's it's a different mindset and a different approach to how we do it but you're not going to be yeah. net zero in, in in overnight. It's this is a long game, and the hard part with that those long games is there's going to be eddies, peaks and troughs. There's going to be ambiguity, mm. and that's where your purpose comes in as a company. What are we doing this for? Who are we? You know, and actually live that, not just say it, not just you know, say, oh yes, we isn't this great? That goes on a PowerPoint presentation and a bunch of investors. You're actually living it. And those investors, if you're living your purpose, those investors know it. They can feel it in the room and they know that and they trust that too because it gives you it gives you more patient capital, if that makes sense. But it's something Larry Fink, Larry Fink talked about, patient capital. So when you, in his 2020 letter to, um, to, to, um, to CEOs, he said that you know better traceability, better transparency, and better ESG is going to provide that patient capital, which means it's okay not to be okay. It's okay when there's it's mm. it's as you're trying to move the ball forward. It is difficult. That's okay. Do it versus the hollow hit of PR, which is going to lead to PR to prosecution, right? As we've said, um, it's yeah, it's it's it's, 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 it's a real change, the isn't it? And and it can be blown in a, in a heartbeat. Yeah, Repu reputation. In and this is you know this is the thing you know. Reputation is really important, and they all talk about reputational risk, but there's most of it's PR. When you get a good company, you do get them. I've been lucky enough to work with one of them again. I was again, and I've spoken a lot about Osmond, but boy, they were really good. Was you had that good reputation? They had that good reputation. They'd built, but that took them a long time. It took them seven years plus, you know, and, you know, again, but that came down through a consistency and a persistency and a long-term view that was shaped by the board, the executives, and then greater culture across the business. And again, not saying it was perfect, not nowhere's perfect, mm -hmm. but boy, it was good. And you could see it and you could feel it and people knew it. And it's, um, you know, we live in an age now of, you know, fake news and bad, you know, cheap media and, you know, facile slogans and sound bites. 
I don't know who people are fooling with that. You know, we're sustainable. We're, we're, we're a sustainable company. Hey, show me how. Yeah. Prove that to yeah. me. Oh, actually, we're not. What you are is on a transition towards sustainability. That's a different story. Yeah, when you can quantify and, uh, and articulate this is what our value is um, mm. or this is what we aspire to get to, you start to align with people and you start to yeah. your own ecosystem starts to align with people that are absolutely on the journey. I think, that, you know, that talks to... to yeah. And that, that also then that shapes your um, partners. Who are you going to partner with, whether they be customers, whether they be investors, whether it be suppliers, whether it be capital, because people will go, we align with what you're doing. And we'll work together to solve these issues together. When when um when I talk to ESG to people, you you know naturally you you find high conviction um, environmental or sustainability people love talking to high conviction environmental or sustainability mm. people. But what they do is they actually end up alienating. I would say it's probably about seventy yeah. percent of the room who are just skeptics. <laughs> it's all great, but we you know let's live in a real world. Uh, with real problems um, and you know so it's an easy you, you, you kind of arm them with an easy sort of counter to that which is we can't, yeah. so why should we try um, you know I often also talk about ESG applies to it applies to every company regardless of size and scale you can be a coal company and be a really good ESG practitioner um, you can be Absolutely you know, in the fossil fuel industry and say these are our values this is how we're doing it and you're effectively aligning those with people that you're working with. Otherwise, you're just going to have lots of messy uh, relationships. Um, yeah, so. it's and, and your point on coal is really good because everyone loves to bedevil coal or oil or gas. And the challenge with it is right now it's necessary and it's necessary until whenever, whenever that might be, right? And there's always going to probably be a need for it because we've always used a heat source. So, you know, without going into the semantics of it, it's necessary right now. So if you're going to be a coal producer, you can still do great ESG, comply with great ESG. And that is still going to help you get that market accessibility because when you are selling coal and you're wanting to sell to Japan or you're wanting to sell to Europe, or you're wanting that market diversification away, you know, from what has been, you know, traditional, you know, certainly traditional in the last 30 years or so, you know, core, core markets and start diversifying that to, you know, de-risk your, you know, your, your, your market access. It's the same deal for, as if you were a critical mineral. If you've got good ESG, you become that natural choice that they say, look, actually, we're going to, we're going to have to buy this. But you know what? We know that this, when we can prove that this is the best, it's got a great, you know, it's not just the product it's where it's coming from and who's producing it, right? So, and that's, 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 that's slowly emerging. You can see that out of certainly with uh, German metal producers um, and especially, and that's been accelerated, you know, with the war in Ukraine where the pursuit of coal is, yeah, you still, you know, Australian coal is good coal. It's, you know, high calorific and it's good quality. But also when you can overlay it with the ESG thing, then again, you can be in that position to say, actually, we'd like a little bit more of a margin on this or we, we're doing better at it or we become the better natural choice um, to do business with. Um, it's, again, ESG helps all things. Um, mm. it, it's not, it, it is sort of the panacea, right, to, to, to help all things. And 
your point about yeah you can't you can't look past the fact that the infrastructure that sits around those assets the Mm. um the capital that sits there you know that that capital is going to come and participate in this transition phase you know that's going to be capital that's actually going to help us um achieve some of those um um, emission reduction objectives as well so it's really important not to just you know you look at Norway, you know, you look at Norway, for example, you know, they grew wealthy um, through oil and gas and it's still a core to what they do. It's still a major part, but as they developed it, they were smart enough to say, we've been given this gift, but also our traditional herring fishing, which was, you know, sort of underwrote the economy right up until sort of oil needs to be sustained. We need to keep this as part of who we are. You know, Giles, you know, this is a new podcast, but one of the things that we're doing with this is we, we, we want the audience and, um, and, you know, previous guests to participate, um, um, in what we ask, uh, the guests that we're, we're, we're hosting, obviously it's the first one. So what we did, Giles, we asked a, a few of our clients and, and colleagues around the office, and I have no idea what sits in these envelopes, but, and they had no idea who the guest was. So this is a bit of a blank question, but really the process here, and, you, and you'll get the opportunity to then craft some questions for whoever comes next into that hot seat that you're in. <laughs> but, you know, effectively good old A, B, and C, Choose an envelope, and we'll reveal it and see whether um, see what lies inside. Uh, I'll take C. C. Oh. Is there any any reason for that? Start my first letter of my last name. <laughs> not, not, not not your average marks at university. Um, oh mate, that would, no no no! You don't even have a letter that's on that list that shows my university <laughs> marks. You know what they say: C's make degrees. So. Um, anyone out there that's studying at the moment feel a bit of comfort within that so okay so drum roll here's the question so child born in 2023 when that child hits 27 so um 2050 i guess that's the date you know there's a lot of long dated targets against 2050 that we're seeing out there will there still be a career in esg and if so what do you think that person will be doing in that role that's a good one. Um, the answer is yes, but it will change. It will evolve as ESG evolves. That's why, and I think it will evolve into, you know, from sustainability as we think today to self-sustaining. So self-sustainability. And where we've gone through the process, hopefully, of um, <clears throat> where we've been able to evolve what we're doing to say, here's business. Sustainable business is we're moving it into a position where it can sort of run itself consistently on the long term. Self-sustaining, because we now can map the value chains upstream and downstream, we understand circularity and we've perfected that, now means that, or in the process of perfecting that, means that you know, urban mining is now a real thing that, you know, we've, we've got that ability to, to, to create a self-sustaining business where partnerships are critical because partners are not just customers anymore. They're partners. They're, they're how we do business. And we, and we, you know, we become our customer's customer, you know, for example. So 
I think we've got a long way to go. So, but you know, 27 years, it, I mean, I, it's, it's a terrifying sight right now when I'm, I'm 44 and I look back and I go 27 years ago, oh, actually wasn't that long ago. <laughs> but what's changed in that has been, yeah, what's changed has been technology. I mean, technology drives it, but also the accelerators that come with that technology is social change. I mean, at the moment, we've got a business that's dominated by boomers and exes. Um, and in 27 years time, it'll be, you know, potentially people like myself or yourself or, you know, th those that are, you know, younger than us now, you know, there's Gen Z coming through now who, where this is normal. This is a normal part of business. It's a, and that's what I, that's why I love Gen Z because Gen Z shows up, right? I, I don't care what anyone <laughs> says. I think they're fantastic because they'll, they'll, they'll call BS and they'll just get on with it. And I really enjoy that. And I think because that generation's also been traumatized, not by war, but by pandemic, they, they get it, I think. And that's what will be good. But that ESG role will, will evolve because again, and we mentioned this earlier, you know, we may have, we may have, you know, become net zero. Great. But those social issues still exist. Slavery, exploitation, you know, responsible supply chain. And the governance is still going to be needed because, you know, anti-corruption, for example, which all sits under the S. So the S is, the S, the social side is always going to be reconstant. I see the E will hopefully evolve into something where we talk about it. It's RSG, restoration social and governance where we are able to be able to reforest, restock, repopulate, regenerate, you know, the damage that we've done. That's where I hope it goes. That's where I think it will hopefully go, you know. And I think, and you know, we will have that acceleration through probably a major war or two, which also is a great exacerbator and accelerator for technology and technology change, uh, which is good. So yeah, that's 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 what I think it will hope you know. So it's um, it will evolve. You know? That's a, that's a really good insight as well. So you know, the role maybe not ESG, but it will be RSG, and that will be the role yeah. that they'll be fulfilling. So I, I love that concept. Yeah, yeah I, I think absolutely. You know, obviously, twenty-seven years of really rich data, you're going to see decision making fly. Oh, completely. Um, the spending power shift to those younger generations. So. Yeah, can't can't wait to see that, and hopefully I'll be around to oh, see that. Man. I'm um, looking forward to the so. the fact that you could get it down to the calorific intake or output of of an industry or a factory or a product, where you can sit down there and then decide accordingly on that. You know, so it's um, mm. it's 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 going to be a long struggle, but I mean, it's the same with technology. Look where we were 27 years ago. You look at the mid 90s. You know, when you know people were, I mean, let, let's be upfront, right? Like, I mean, even the current boards and leaders, you know, executives now, most of them barely, most of them didn't have the internet or email until really not that long ago, 27 years ago, I suppose, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, um, so, you know, the ain't social change amazing, right? Like it's, um, 27, 27 years is a long time. Um, it's also a short time too. And I think that's the other thing to remember in this space is, is is that we're playing the long game, but a lot can happen. A lot can happen in a day. A lot can happen in a week. And a lot can happen in a year. And a lot can happen in a decade. Um, 
it's just keeping that perspective and that goes back to what we were talking about that long-term view and the purpose-driven objectives that we're going to have and need to face and harnessing that power of quality data to make good decisions and set us up set us up for success it's not going to be easy there'll be detractors there always will be detractors that's okay i'm not really you know the, 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 let them don't really care they're on the wrong side of yeah. history on this one i think so it's you know i think the older i've got and i suppose with my career as well i, I started a decade later than people my own age now so i came in with a younger generation because of my early career you know doing what i was doing um so you come in with a with a much younger mindset more youthful mindset um to some degree and that verve and energy which i still think is really important um and um which is often often lost and i think it is lost i think because people get comfortable and complacent um but you know with youth comes energy and i think it's but we can't just rely on that we've got to do something now right but, you know, youth youth needs direction leadership you know capability and direction right and that that's what we can helpfully do right now if we start it now if we do it well we can set them up to, to finish it off because again this is not about us saving the planet and saving people is not just about us individually it's about us collectively and it's and it's changing that world view from it's not about you it's about people you'll never meet in countries that you'll never see and you know orangutans that you'll never get to you know see or photograph but hopefully we'll still be around um if we do the right work so um and, and society in a better more equitable space it's never going to be equal but more equitable um that's that's hopefully what i see and, and i think that's really actually what it will be It'll, you know you know the rsg you know rseg you know you know rehabilitation or regeneration social equitable and governance mm. So, yeah, I love that. I saw I saw a saying the other day, and I think it sort of summarizes that that really well, which is, you know, um, we we overestimate what we can achieve in the year and underestimate what mm. we can achieve in the decade, um, which, you know, yeah. I think that that absolutely sort of really? speaks volume for this, this phase that we're in, this transition phase. You can see that in, you know, war is always an interesting benchmark for things, right? And, you know, not a proponent for it in any sense of the word, but what you see in a state of conflict and disaster, when it really is a conflict and disaster, is how fast things move. It accelerates it. You can see it. You know. You, you know. And and that's why the automobile is going through its. It's actually not even going through a revolution right now. It's, it actually is going through a revolution. It's going backwards. Because it's never been a weapon of war, it's never evolved. It's never ever been a frontline weapon. Unlike an aeroplane, you know, you look at what started in World War One, and you had, you know, kites, basically glorified kites with an engine, and it evolved into, you know, you know by the end of the Second World War, you know, twenty-seven years later, you had like jet fighters and all sorts of stuff going on, which is cool. Um, but the car didn't. I mean, there was more electric cars in nineteen oh eight than there were, you know petrol powered so we've actually gone backwards um or not backwards but certainly done a revolution backwards to that state um and we saw that in COVID, you know get a vaccine 18 months boom done 
It was a collective action. Why? Because everybody was impacted by it. Everyone was inconvenienced by it. And I think that's probably going to be the great driver. The day that you're, you become inconvenienced in your life by any aspect of ESG collectively, you'll go, ah, right, we've got to do something about this. Yeah. But that emergency is not quite there yet, again, because that's, that's the spur for innovation. So I think that hopefully Stanley McChrystal said it, who is the um, general, very well thought out individual, quite the contrarian as well, you know, um, now does a lot at Yale um, in the leadership space and strategic thinking space. And, um, and he said, you know, you, you know, you're always, um, actually you can cut that part because I've got the wrong general. <laughs> I'll start that again. Um, I'll start that again. Um, Go for it. Yeah. The, you know, General Brown in the US Air Force has, has done this where he said you need to create a space of not emergency, but that pressure that comes with emergency to keep that evolution going. That doesn't mean, you know, being frantic, but it's like keeping everybody on a, on a, on a keeping things sharp and to have a pre-crisis crisis. So you're already adapted to that crisis before it even hits. So it's that, um, and I think that until we get something like that, um, I don't know what will trigger that. You know, we, we've seen it with volcanoes, for example. That's always a great one. You saw it with Krakatoa, you know, in the 1800s, and you know, where it, it completely changed the climate. You know, and you had, you know, a year-long winter. You know, which is then reflected in art, for example. But unless we have a significant climatic crisis or a significant social crisis, for example, um, that impacts people's lives directly, I, I think we're still going to be a little bit slow on it. But then in saying that, it's gathering pace. Where were we five years ago? Go back to 2015, where were we? You wouldn't have this conversation. It would be very difficult to have this conversation. So, again, give that 27 years' time. We'll get some very smart emerging talent come through in Gen Z who will be great at what they do and they'll bring a vitality and the next generation after that and they're hopefully their kids and um, we'll, 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 we'll help support that and but we need to lay that foundation now so yeah says a man who's yeah. no children <laughs> no I like it. that's I got one final final question for you Joel and we can lead into it but um and then we're then we're done and i'll i'll do the intro but um so yeah it, uh, you mentioned something that's pretty close to my heart i'm um you know was diagnosed i guess as dyslexic from good old age of around six and a half seven and been on that journey oh, um no where fun. you know it starts off you know treated as a disability but actually i think it's been an enabler um if i look at yep. my career and where it's taken me and uh, and so forth. And you mentioned that, you know, you're a fellow dyslexic and I guess we've got this sort of broader neurodiversity going on in society or finding ways to classify that. But, um, uh, you know, I am coming across a lot of dyslexics in this space. Do you think that's coincidence or, yeah. you know, is, is that, is that something that, um, is happening by design? Uh, we're coming out. <laughs> you know, I'm with you. There we go. What, what I'm liking about with the dyslexic space is, and, the, and this actually relates to ESG, because what dyslexia brings people is a 
problem solver. They're natural problem solvers. That's why NASA hires 60% of its people are dyslexic, right? They are problem solvers. Right. They know how to do it because they think backwards. They think, you know, and that's their superpower. And it is a superpower. And not only does hiring dyslexics and neurodivergent people add, when we look at ESG and we look at the S side, right? I mean, talking about inclusion and diversity and equity, for example, that's always tended to be in a bit like environment, you know, in E, it's been down one very sort of narrow lens, which is a good start, great start, and it's a fantastic start. But also as well, we've always been focused on one or two major sort of core metrics in that sort of, you know, inclusion, equity, and diversity space. The moment we start to realize that everybody actually adds value and has value, that's really critical. I mean, you look at it within the military, the best military operations at the moment, everybody in there, well, would say everybody but i'd say a very large percentage of the best operators out there you know the people that we like to watch films about and movies about and miniseries and television series about because are dyslexics because they can solve problems and do the extraordinary um steve jobs churchill uh bill gates lincoln you look at anyone that's done anything great and created that social change. They've been generally one of two things, dyslexic or had significant lifelong challenges with mental health. Mm. And because, and through that pressure and perspective shift, it, you get better, you have to evolve, you know, it's, you know, you know, I don't know, are you, are you a left-handed or as well or no? No, I'm right-handed. So. Yeah, so, um, so I'm a lefty. So everything, every, yeah, you know, it's right. always that thing when people say, tell, so you tell got, us a time you've had to adapt. And you go, be a left-hander. <laughs> um, everything, there's 3,000 people in the year. Walk in the proper hand, though, you know, oh. you brought up with a whip, as my mother yeah. did for my sister, but yeah. Uh, but I think the, the benefit of dyslexia is also going to bring a superpower. Everyone talks about AI and how amazing AI, AI is. AI mm. is going to be great in some regards, and we won't, and that's a discussion for another one. So what what AI yeah. is, is a great aggregator. What a dyslexic is, is a great thinker and problem solver. So you imagine that aggregating all that AI data with a dyslexic over the top as a problem solver. That's a super powerful combination right there. And they will outthink and outperform they will provide you foresight, not forecasts. And that's the power. And, and you can see this right now. And, and I'll finish on this note that if you go on the LinkedIn, you know, the bastion of all things, right? You can now put as a skill dyslexic thinking. And that's through the work of a group called um, Made by Dyslexia based in the UK. And they did a lot of work with... Uh, Groups like EY, they actually produced a report by EY called the the, the, Bene you know, the the Benefits of Dyslexia. It came out in 2019. Fantastic report that basically said, if you're not hiring dyslexics right now, you, you're missing this entire pool of people. But their barrier to entry has always been, you know, we were making fun about it earlier about, you know, was that your school grades? My school grades were terrible because being a dyslexic, it just, I just couldn't do it because the structure wasn't, didn't work for me until I found the ways to work that work well for me. So if you've got uh, those very numerically based tests that, you know, certain uh, 
consultancy groups now have, you know, and they're, 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 what's your GPA and what did you do on this very, very, very specific numerical test? Well, that's great. You can get all the, you know, very numerical people you'd like, and that's fantastic. That's good groupthink. And that's a very slow death for an organization versus celebrating diversity and saying, actually, this test doesn't work. And um, there was a great champion for that actually at BHP who helped remove those tests because it prevented quality candidates that went, these people are great, but they're not getting through this thing. And and so he was a fantastic guy. A guy called Sandeep Singh. He was very good at it. So um, he's still there. He's very good. Um, that's because he understood what it was like to be different. He understood what it was like to be um, come from a different background or think differently or do differently. And, you know, that's what made him great and still what makes him great, you know. And, um, so, yeah. Yeah. You want to solve no, these absolutely. problems? Good data and dyslexics. Double there you days. go. You get those two together. That would solve all the problems. <laughs> well, John, look, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating. Oh, you. You know, coming from your oh, early career, the military mindset, then legal background, and then, you know, being in the trenches again, <laughs> but on the ESG trenches and, and showing those experience. So thanks so much for your time. And, oh, you. Uh, you know, certainly look forward to seeing, you know, what, what, what you get up to next. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And I think this is the thing. It's about being persistent and consistent over the long term. Um, I'll have to listen to this at some stage when, <laughs> when I forget <laughs> that. But no, thank you. And it's been great. Be good. And uh, do something good for somebody else. And have a great day. Fantastic. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. And what a rip of an episode it was. I'd like to express my gratitude to Joel Coward for his invaluable insights and for joining us on What the Plus F. I particularly enjoyed the glimpse into the future of what is to come and how ESG seamlessly integrates with businesses, customers, and its partners. We hope this episode has provided you with valuable insights and inspired you to think differently about the potential of ESG in your own business and beyond. Before we sign off, I'd like to extend an invitation to all our listeners. If you're eager to delve deeper into the world of ESG, or if you're seeking guidance on unlocking the plus F within your organization, we at ESG Plus F are here to assist. Please feel free to visit our website, www.esg-f.com and book a one-on-one -on -one session with us today. Additionally, if you have any specific questions, insights or feedback about our discussions here, please do not hesitate to reach out on Spotify, Google or Apple Podcasts. We greatly value the perspectives of our audience and contributions your contributions could very well influence the content of our future episodes. Thank you for tuning in and we eagerly anticipate your company in the next episode. <laughs>